0: Chapter 2 Bursting the Love Bubble Once the decision is made to begin searching for a mate, the issue of how to choose takes priority. It is important to take an objective look at the approach to marriage that prevails in the society we live in, because this unwittingly affects us. Many of us have been taught to appreciate and emulate the mentality of our world today. But we can question it. Is there anything lacking, or are there aspects that might be considered objectionable, irrational, or even nonsensical? What constructive criticism can we offer? Whatever method we are considering, it should be analyzed carefully. I admit that it is not pleasant to be critical of something so important, almost secret, to most people, and that it might be better if we could begin with a discussion of all the positive criteria that go into making one's decision. We'll discuss them later. However, because of the importance of this subject and the major consequences that it generates, I feel we should deal with it at this point. Let us proceed with a positive and rational approach. Love at first sight. The general assumption of our society is that the most important criteria for deciding to marry someone is love. Of course, there are other factors that may play a role, such as financial stability, social needs, and various other subjective and practical considerations. However, love is more than just another important factor. It is considered the very element that creates the desire to marry. Feeling the powerful emotion of love is considered the surest sign to the couple that they have found their true mate. How does one arrive at this state of love? In secular circles, this attraction usually begins casually. A young man and a young woman mix in the same circles where they spend time together. They single each other out from among the group and they spend extra time talking. As time goes on, the relationship becomes more serious. They go out on dates, speak on the phone, etc. There is a strong physical and personal attraction which generates an especially good feeling when they are together. This leads to a state of excitement. They are in the clouds. They lose their appetite, hear music in their ears, and can't stop thinking of each other. When they reach this very exquisite state of falling in love, they know that they have formed their true, found their true mate, and they may become engaged, with marriage soon to follow. Although this process usually takes time, it can also happen in a sped-up version called love at first sight, or going head over heels. The heart as a barometer. Of course, in the yeshiva world, people don't move in mixed circles, and there is no casual dating. However, the premise is the same, and it is subscribed to by many serious religious people. Everyone maintains the idea that somewhere in the world a young woman is waiting for him, who is destined to be his wife. This is the woman selected for him by God from the beginning of creation, and he only has to find her. And the main criterion in recognizing one's life partner is this feeling of love. The one barometer of success in this feeling in one's heart Even if one meets a lovely girl with many fine qualities, he is sure that she is not for him if his heart does not arrive at this state. Before we get to the truth of the issue, I would like to share with you a story I heard from my Rebbe, one of the great leaders, Moreno Vrabbeinu Reva Victor Miller, who created a most beautiful Torah community and whose books and tapes are a great inspiration to many. In a lecture on this subject, which he gave to some very serious yeshiva students, He tried to communicate to them what the Torah outlook has to say. After the lecture, a young man approached him and said, forgive me for saying this Rabbi, but if you want Bacharim to continue attending your talks, you shouldn't speak about this topic. Imagine a person of stature speaking to such an elite audience and getting this reaction. You may find this amusing, but it is actually very serious. This is an issue about which young men feel so strongly and carry such illusions. That it is difficult for them to hear an approach other than what they hold in their hearts rabbi miller was treading upon sacred ground yet this whole approach to love has been totally blown out of proportion the secular world has taken a false theory and promoted it and packaged it until it seemed like an absolute indispensable truth and b'nai torah have bought that package ava verse love Now, of course, love exists, and there is no lack of sources in the Torah that teaches about it. Chumash, Shir Hashirim, Chazal. Clearly, I'm not denying that people fall in love and that strong emotional attachments are needed between two people contemplating spending their lives together. The difference is that we understand that love is very serious and a beautiful thing that develops after one has married. Hashem created love between husband and wife, and it is surely something wonderful. However... There is no correlation between the Ava and the secular version of love. So one of the first things you must know when going out on Shidduchim is that you must reevaluate the secular concept of love before using it and choosing a life partner. In discussing the secular love scenario and its shallowness, I will share some insight from both the Torah and from secular sources, mostly articles that I have collected over the years. However, I ask you to forgive me if you find these articles upsetting, as if your world has just come apart, God forbid, or that your hopes and aspirations have been devastated. We are attempting here to perform radical surgery, to cut out this false idea of love that can block our way to achieving the true ideal. In Mikhtav Melio, Rev. Dessler discusses the episode of Yitzhak Avinu's Shidduch with Rivka. We know that Avram Avino sent his servant, Elazar, back to his homeland to find the Shadrach for Yitzhak, and Elazar carried out this mission, basing his choices exclusively on the many fine qualities he saw in Rivka. Dessler points out that the main criteria in recognizing a soulmate was one's own feeling of love, and no one would be capable of choosing a mate for anyone else. No matter how well-intentioned the person might be or how smart, he still cannot select a mate for you, Quite simply, not because he doesn't understand what you're looking for, but because he cannot have feelings on your behalf. Even if this person were exceptionally clever, the world's greatest psychologist, Kabbalist, palm reader, and psychic all rolled into one. He can never achieve feelings on behalf of someone else. Furthermore, no matter how well you can read, he can read you, it's impossible to, for him to choose a mate for you, because choosing a mate has nothing to do with soul matching and character traits, the heart has to be on fire and you have to be floating around on cloud nine. No emissary can determine these feelings. Even if he were, would be able to match you correctly according to your personality, who can guarantee that your heart will be on fire? Even if, if a would have been able to match Yitzhak and Rivka according to their character traits, the nuclear fission needed for starting this relationship would always be missing if Yitzhak's heart was not aflame. If this love theory was true, then Avram was guilty of tremendous callousness and great negligence in looking for the wife of his son. Yet this is a crucial episode in the history of Jewish people. It was a link in the chain of all that Avram and Sarah cried and prayed for. At least they should have invested a minimal effort in finding a suitable mate for Yitzchak. And yet we find that Hashem recorded in the Torah for all eternity the manner in which Yitzchak found the Shidduch. Did Avram break all the laws of Shidduchim? Or is the Torah teaching us a lesson about what is needed to create a shirach and what marriage is meant to be? Surely if Avram Avinu sends his loyal servant and closest disciple to look for a mate for Yitzchak, we can learn that love does not need to be the criterion for finding a mate. The Torah is teaching us that the whole theory is false. While we see that Yaakov Avinu did go looking for a wife himself, this is not a contradiction. We are not saying that a person shouldn't find his own mate. However, since we find the case in which a shirach was made through an emissary, we see that love can't be the only criterion, and even in the case of Yaakov, who concluded upon first seeing Rachel that she was to be his mate, it does not make sense, even from a secular viewpoint, to claim that it was love at first sight, and that he fell head over heels, to the point of committing himself to seven years of hard work. After all, she was a complete stranger. Rev. Aaron Cutler said that understanding Yaakov Avinu's actions in terms of the secular concept of romance love is diametrically opposed to the truth of Torah. As for finding one's own mate, Rev. Dessler goes so far as to say that when choosing a spouse, the least suitable person to carry this out is the individual concerned. There are so many character traits that have to be taken into account. In addition, we are blinded by self-interest, and it's almost impossible for a person to be objective. The ideal thing to do is have a good emissary, someone with a lot of wisdom and insight, and who understands the person very well. In our society, this, of course, is not acceptable. As far as Yakovina was concerned, however, special circumstances were at work. The Great Illusion even the non-Jewish world recognized these truths for centuries. The whole concept of love in the Western world is relatively new. For most of history, marriages were arranged in the Jewish world, we live by this system until recently. Shadduchim were made by parents and matchmakers who were deeply involved in the process of finding a spouse for their offspring. They knew what their children needed, they knew the personalities involved, they weren't distracted by glamour or infatuation. Of course, the couples had to agree on the proposed match. However, the parents' involvement shows that the process was the opposite of the concept of falling in love as we understand it today. Therefore, even though the general practice today is to leave the decisions up to the couples, they should be made aware that they are probably the worst candidates for the job, and they should try to get as much guidance as possible. In this vein, I would like to quote an an article that I came across in the Reader's Digest many years ago that quotes one of the leading secular authorities on marriage. The American courtship is considered considerably detrimental to marriage and raising a family, for humankind's most important and sacred institution deserves earnest contemplation and prayer. He sometimes felt that Americans parent, American parents permit and even encourage their children to select their mate is just about the worst of all possible ways. It is generally believed in the United States to be a law of nature that young men and women should have full reign to meet in schools, at dances, street corners, pair off on chaperoned dates, fall in love, and rush to the altar with or without their parents' approval. Actually, this kind of courtship is something very new. Unlike like other innovations, do not, does not necessarily represent pure progress. The, Ameri- the arranged marriage planned by parents was one of the first customs adopted by those whose standard of living began to rise in the world. By the 1890s, it is estimated that 9 out of 10 European marriages were based on practical considerations. Although World War II has weakened this, the arranged marriage is still the rule in many parts of Europe, Latin America and the Orient. To Americans, the arranged marriage has a bad name. We weep for all the poor girl, poor girls forced into marriage against their will. Yet Dr. David Mates, executive director of the American Association of Marriage Counselors, notes in the book of marriage East and West that many of these victims of the arranged marriage have not seemed to mind it at all. Indeed, young women from the Far East observing Western culture customs for the first time often feel sorry for American girls. The idea of being forced to go out alone into the open market and to preen and flirt in the hope of attracting a husband strikes them as undignified and demeaning. The daughter of a traditional Chinese family knew that finding a husband was her parents' sacred duty, and she grew up confident that it would be wisely and capably fulfilled. The fact is that the orient literature may very well contain more accounts of happy marriage and discussions of tender sentiments between husband and wife than western literature perhaps the east has been correct and dr bizarre has always felt in thinking that finding the right mate is too difficult and important a job to trust to the young by and large american youngsters are left pretty much to their own devices to choose whomever they please. By this act of freedom, they are assured that one day, the one special person will someday come along, and they will know that they are in love. What does it mean to fall in love? Although love is one of the oldest words in human language, such classics as the Odyssey showed that in olden times, it was much more frequently applied to, uh, to God, to country, parents, and brothers, rather than husband and wife. The kind of romantic love a man was supposed to have for a maid was invented by the time that knighthood was in flower and even then it was considered too flagrant and fleeting an emotion to serve as a basis for anything so important as marriage until quite recently no substantial number of people ever really believed in it the business of finding a mate ideally called for a good hard realistic look at the other person Glamour and charm and physical attractiveness are a poor basis for marriage, which, if all goes well, can last for 50 years or more. It's a good idea to see a prospective mate in as many situations as possible, particularly difficult and unglamorous ones, and to study family and friends, which often tell more about a person than he would reveal of himself. This advice may sound callous, but it produces far better results than any romantic illusion, the scene of two lovers walking conveys all the far- false dreams of romantics, but people don't live together that way. Rather, they live together in close quarters where they see each other's pimples and wrinkles and sags, and all the romantic vision only separates partners further since they try to grasp a mirage rather than the real person. The dream must be relinquished in order to enjoy the real thing. The above article was, is written throughout in this vein depicting how love twists people's minds, yet the article ends on a positive note. Trust each other's overall behavior, all the gestures, thoughtfulness, words, and deeds, to convey the caring that leads to intimacy. Real caring, one for the other, can be expressed without the need to con- of constant repetition of, I love you. Human closeness comes naturally when it is not confused or sabotaged by abstractions of romantic love. When two people come together with kindness, tenderness, liking and caring, they can discover an intimacy that endures. It took wisdom. Along these lines, the author of A Toast to the Bride, also from a very old Reader's Digest, writes about a honeymoon vacation he took to Antwerp to visit his grandparents who were out on their to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. Two days before the anniversary, we took grandmother to tea in a restaurant. Here, after giving each of us a long, curious look, she asked how well we had known each other before our marriage. We, were to- we went together for almost two years, I said. You might say we knew each other very well. How wonderful for you both, she smiled. You must have been very much in love by the time you married. Then grandmother revealed something that I had never heard before. When your grandfather and I were wed, our parents arranged the marriage that often happened in those days. I was shown a picture of your grandfather, but I did not meet him until the week before the wedding. You might say that each of us married a stranger. Even so, grandmother added after a pause, there would not have been anything painful about it if your grandfather had not been in love with someone else. Grandmother gazed at her teacup, and I suddenly understood that things had been buried in her heart for a long time. Maybe the impending anniversary was bringing them back, and she had to speak of them to someone she could take into her confidence. He wanted very much to marry the other girl, she went on, but his father was not flexible, and since her grandfather was a dutiful son, he finally yielded. But you can imagine how much he must have resented what he had to do, and through the years he must often have thought of the life he could have had. My wife reached across the table for my grandmother's hand. You don't really believe such things, she said. You've had a good life with grandfather. Anyone can see that. For me, it has been good, yes. He has been gentle and considerate. And yet surely you have seen that your grandfather lives withdrawn in a world of his own. I said, he must have forgotten that other woman years ago. Grandmother shook her head. She married once one of Belgium's leading bankers. Her picture has been in the newspaper year after year. You see her leaving for theater or at opera. Do not misunderstand. I cannot think your grandfather has been in love with her all this time, but he cannot have forgotten what might have been. And now with our anniversary coming, she closed her eyes and she did not have to say what she feared. I found myself arguing, but grandmother, you love him with all your heart. Then why shouldn't he have come to love you? I represent what he has lost in life. It was an appalling thought. We were really about to commemorate 50 years of frustration. The anniversary day itself began joyfully. All morning flowers and telegrams were being delivered, and in the afternoon the callers came. Grandfather wore a cutaway and a correct smile. Grandmother looked truly regal. A 90-piece band for a half hour serenaded the anniversary couple. The concert was only a prelude for the formal banquet at 9 o'clock. When the dinner ended, the mayor of Antwerp rose and raised his champagne glass high. He proposed a toast to a couple beloved and respected throughout our city. A couple whose gracious lives have set a model for others to follow. To their long years and continued happiness, we all rose and drank. The mayor spoke again. On occasions like this, it's always my pleasure to call upon the groom of 50 years to offer a toast to his bride of 50 years. He turned to grandmother. Monsieur, we wait. Grandfather seemed abashed as he rose. His hands shook when he groped for the glass. Grandmother lowered her face. She was very pale and her eyes were closed as though in prayer. Grandfather slowly began. The mayor suggested I offer this toast to my wife, but I hope she will understand if I offer it to someone else. I looked towards grandmother again. Her eyes were squeezed shut in a kind of pain. Grandfather went on. I have never learned how to express my sentiments. Even now, I cannot speak the words I really want to say still i would like to offer this toast not to my wife but to my wife's parents and to my parents it was their wisdom that brought us together and i want to thank them from the bottom of my heart for a wife who has given me the richest and happiest and the best life a man can ask and love such full-hearted love he stopped embarrassed unable to find any other words he looked down at grandmother in desperation as if begging her to come to his rescue She lifted her face, from which the years had miraculously dropped away. It held such radiance, such adoration, such gratitude, that the crowd began to applaud wildly. Grandfather shakily sat down. He had said everything. This article cast light on the outlook that even the secular world once had regarding Shadokim. Napoleon's mistake. Here's another example, this time a famous person, proving the opposite side of the coin. The story is from the well-known book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, by Dale Carnegie. This secular book has been approved by Torah authorities because it deals wisely with many important principles of life. At the end of the book are seven very valuable chapters that contain seven rules for a happy marriage. In the newer updated editions, these chapters have been deleted. The following story took place about 100 years ago in France, during the reign of Napoleon III. Napoleon fell in love with a woman called Maria de Mingado. She was considered at the time to be the most beautiful woman in the world. This was at a time when everyone wed through arranged marriages, especially kings who married into other royal families for political reasons. However, in this case, Napoleon married for love. His advisors pointed out that she was only the daughter of an insignificant Spanish court. Napoleon retorted, What of it? Her grace, her youth, her charm, her beauty filled him with divine felicity. In his speech hurled from the throne, he advised an entire nation, I have preferred a woman I love and respect to a woman unknown to me. Napoleon and his bride had health, wealth, power, fame, beauty, love, adoration, all the many requirements for a perfect romance. Never did the sacred fire of marriage glow with a brighter incandescence. But alas, the holy flame soon flickered, and all the incandescence cooled and turned into ember. Napoleon could make Maria an empress, but nothing in all of France, even the power of his love or the might of his throne, could keep her from nagging. Bedeviled by jealousy, devoured by suspicion, she flouted his orders. She denied him even a show of privacy. She broke into his office while he was engaged in affairs of the state. She interrupted his most important discussions. She refused to leave him alone, always fearing that he might be consorting with another woman. She often ran to her sister, complaining of her husband, complaining, weeping, nagging, threatening, forcing her way into his study. She stormed at him and abused him. Napoleon, master of dozens sumptuous palaces, emperor of France, could not find a cupboard which he could call his soul his own. What did she accomplish by all this? The article goes on to describe how their marriage ended in tragedy. Here you have a classic example of a man who was inspired by the ideal of love and who rejected the conventional systems. He planned on rising above the petiteness of arranged marriages and to worship at the altar of love. He was going to find his true mate through his heart. Yet we see the whole affair ended in disaster. The Falling in Love Invention In American society, people often claim that falling in love is the natural way of finding a shidduch. But having other people act for you is unnatural. Just as the natural way to satisfy hunger or thirst is to eat or drink, so the natural way to attain matrimony is by falling in love. It is interesting how far the secular world takes this line of thinking, even attributing love to animals. Here is a typical story. One day, a lonely farmer finds an injured wild goose on his property. He nurses it back to health, feeds it, and cares for it. The goose becomes a beloved pet. But one fine spring day, a female goose comes flying overhead. And the farmer's bird hears its cry. It looks up to the sky wistfully. The farmer lets the goose go, and it flies off to join its mate. The two lovebirds fly off into the sunset and live happily ever after. It might sound comical, but there are libraries of books filled with stories about love between animals. You see even simple creatures worship at the altar of love. It's in in nature's way, we are told. In response to this argument, I would like to refer to a very old article, again from the Reader's Digest, that deals with one of the oldest, untouchable tribal peoples in the world, the Society of South Africa Bushmen in the Kalahari Desert that stretches across Southwest Africa. This tribe is totally natural, untainted by modern society. I would like to quote an interesting paragraph which discusses their manner of Shaduchim. Tutti arises to start the day and glances at his wife Bo. He didn't marry her for her beauty or for love. He married her because she was a good worker. She was still a child. While she was still a child, he had watched as she went on her daily food gathering expeditions. He admired the way she used her digging stick and respected the burden of food she brought home wild melons, figs, cucumbers, yams, and berries. As with all Bushwomen, Bo is quite large. To Tutti, this feature is a sign of good health. Moreover, the fat deposits serve as a useful purpose to keeping Beau during going during food emergencies. This story is of natural society. Follow, following natural instincts teaches us that there is nothing natural about contemporary distorted view called the love theory. Charm School. I would like to discuss another fallacy regarding the idea of using love as a criterion for marriage. Let's ask ourselves, what really is this feeling of love after all? Often it's nothing more than physical attraction, and what sometimes goes by the name of binding of souls is merely based on looks. At other times it's simply infatuation. This is something different from looks. A sweet sort of behavior on the part of the girl that charms the bacher. Should this be the criterion? Well, there is an institution called Charm School, they can take a girl who until recently was the local tomboy, but who now has to get married and teach her how to walk, how to talk, etc. With the result that the young man who goes out with her may very well become infatuated. But this charm isn't genuine. She threw away her baseball hat and learned how to act this way in school. The boy thinks he is in love with her, but in fact he's infatuated with something she just learned. Now you see it, now you don't. Another problem with love is that it comes and goes on the third date. It wasn't there on the fourth date. It was on the fifth date. It was not there. And then on the sixth date, it comes back again. You don't know where it came from, or you don't know where it went. Is it true love or not? If it stays for a few dates, you assume it will last forever. So you go ahead with your plans for marriage. But is this a true measure for relationship? Why does it come and go? If this is God's truth, why does it fluctuate? In my experience with helping young men, I've heard these words over and over again. On this date, I felt it, and the next date, I didn't. At other times, this feeling derives from role modeling. Unfortunately, those who were exposed to movies or television put themselves in the role of what they saw. They saw people falling in love, and they picture themselves doing that now. They have formed an idea about the type of young woman they are looking for. Perhaps they can even describe what she will look like. Then they meet a young woman who matches that image. She seems to fulfill their expectations, but this is just a form of brainwashing from our society. And sometimes it's just plain desire. This doesn't even depend on looks or charm, a fact which further, pro- which further proves mistakenly that the match must be basheret. But I'm not physically attracted to her, the young man says, so it must be love. But a bacher can desire young woman for many reasons. It's a normal human phenomenon, However, he should be clear as to what his motives, his motivation is, and not give in such high-sounding, sophisticated labels as true Ava. There is a famous quote from the Chazanish: What the non-Jews call love, we call kares, spiritual exorcism. An article called What Is This Thing Called Love from the Reader's Digest studies the natural The nature of emotions and suggests that certain chemicals in the human body produce a romantic feeling. They've even been able to isolate the chemical. Chocolate has the same chemical in it, too. If you are dating someone and you both eat chocolate, you can have this feeling. The point of this article is to try to examine some of the fallacies and pitfalls of basing conclusions on this meaningless emotional state that can sometimes be induced by chemicals alone. The article ends... Not long ago, I attended the 50th anniversary of a friend's parents. What was it you first saw in each other, I asked. There was a moment of silence. Finally, the husband looked up and said nothing. The whole thing was arranged by a marriage broker. He decided we were made for each other, and I guess he was right. The falseness of the love affair is also obvious from the following scenario. Boys and girls will go out until they find the one they fall in love with. This is the greatest proof that she is the true mate, since he didn't fall in love with any of the others he dated. Now, let's say this boy or girl dates hun- dated hundreds, surely they will experience this special feeling with at least a few. It turns out that this special feeling is not so special, if you can feel this way about many prospects. We know that in the secular world, people have crushes on movie stars or popular music idols. A million people can have a crush on the same star, are they all, be- are they all basheret? Is there any validity in these feelings? Misinterpreting the voice. The Gemara Sota says, 40 days before the formation of the embryo, a heavenly voice declares, the daughter of this one to that one. Many people equate these words of Chazal with the love theory. They claim that the girl with whom one falls in love with was chosen before birth. Unfortunately, this is a misconception of what Chazal said, and it's based on an attempt to reconcile it with the love idea. Of course, the announcement in heaven indicates who is Bashar for him to marry, but who said that love was the criterion in making the decision? The truth of the matter is that love is really very closely related to marriage, but it is the result of marriage that is healthy, happy marriage. It is not the basis or criterion for deciding on marriage. Love is the strongest connection that binds you to your spouse. This great attachment encompasses our whole being, our emotions and intellect, our minds and heart. The Chajanish says that this true love can reach such a high point that even if a spouse actually wrongs the other, no hurt is even felt. It is one hand hitting the other. This connection comes from building up relationship that is based on the solid foundation of the true axiom of human nature and behavior. Love is built brick by brick by mutual consideration, care, and concern. It builds and draws upon all aspects of greatness of character. We put aside our pride. We are forgiving, even if one feels that he or she is right. There is a saying that couples who have real love for each other are those who spell us with a capital U. No one can imagine that one could achieve great success in any field without investing a lot of thought and effort. And likewise, no one should be foolish enough to believe that he can attain true love in marriage without really working for it. A wise man once compared the achievement of true love to lighting a good log fire. You build a fire with paper and kindling, and all at once it goes up in a brilliant blaze. Then the primary blaze burns down, and you wonder if the fire will fizzle out and leave you in the dark. You blow on it, you fan it for all you're worth. Sometimes smoke billows at you and almost chokes you. But if the materials are good, and if you invest enough energy and attention in maintaining it, soon the big big solid logs catch, and your fire takes on new qualities. Getting married may or may not be so easy. Staying married is surely difficult. However, staying happily married with what it takes to create real love should be considered among the finest arts and greatest accomplishments. This is true to such a degree that some say that perfect love sometimes does not come until the arrival of the first grandchild. In this connection, there is a story told about Rebbe Kivieger, one of the most profound Torah giants and Jewish leaders of the last 200 years. When his Rebison passed away, he was emotionally devastated. He explained that they had shared a very close and special relationship. I can guarantee that he was not referring to his wife's culinary art or her special technique in laundering his shirts. And anyone who knows about the holiness of this great Sadiq would not for a moment think that he was alluding to their physical relationship. He also revealed that they spent many nights together and engaged in some spiritual rapport throughout the night. This account is especially precious and striking since it's so contrary to the conventional image we have of his prototype. There was obviously a very strong, deep, true love between them. To sum it all up with a few wise sayings, when the satisfaction and security of another person becomes as significant to one as one's own satisfaction or security, then the state of love exists. Love is not a one-way thing. It's a two-way process in which the individuals participate and respect each other's idiosyncrasies. They need and value each other's companionship. The differences between them have either been accepted or worked out. So let us discard the false ideal of love as the basis for choosing our mate. May Hashem lead you to your right zivog and someday you will really experience true love.